0: This episode of Case Acquaint involves subject matter which may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 10. Today's story has garnered lots of regional attention over the years, but not so much national attention And in fact, we just learned about this case when reviewing some recent court cases. It's bizarre twists and turns, the lack of law enforcement and judicial accountability, and some other aspects of the case make it a story that's almost unfathomable. But these things really did happen. The justice is again trumped by everything else and everything corrupt. Over the years, the theories about this case have run the gamut. And you're going to hear about many of these seemingly insane theories that have just enough of a possibility to make you wonder. While you're listening, though, you might consider how you'd feel if you were the parents of this missing person. So let's get right to the story. This is the April 16th, 1988 disappearance of 17-year-old Randy Wayne Leach. Harold and Alberta Leach lived what most would consider a normal life and had every expectation that this would not change. Their only child, Randy, was about to graduate high school, and because he was a good student with bright prospects, the Leeches surprised Randy with some special gifts. First, they found and began the restoration of a vintage Mustang just for Randy. Secondly, they gave Randy a brand new riding lawn mower so he could use it to make money over the coming summer in and around their rural area of Leavenworth County, Kansas. Randy, by all accounts a responsible and good-natured young man, immediately put the mower to good use while his Mustang was still in the shop being worked on. April 15, 1988 was a normal day. Randy took his new mower out for a job and when he finished working, he left home and picked up a friend named Steve Daughtry. We'll have a little more about Steve later. The two friends drove around town for a while, according to Steve, and Randy brought Steve over to the mechanic's shop to check out any progress being made on his Mustang, during which time Steve and the mechanic drank some beer, but Randy didn't drink any. And after driving around a little more, Randy dropped Steve back off at his house in the small farming town of Linwood at 9.30 p.m. That's what Steve says. Randy's next stop was reportedly to put gas in his parents' car. Now, when Randy left his own home that evening at 6.45, he had no more than $60 in his pocket. And from what was known, he spent some of that money that night on two candy bars, two cans of Pepsi, and $3 worth of gas, for the 1985 gray Dodge 600 sedan that belonged to his parents and which he was borrowing for the night. Back then, I think gas cost around maybe a little less than a dollar per gallon, so it seems like Randy was just making sure he didn't run the tank to empty with his socializing around those rural Kansas towns. And you know, that's a sign of a thoughtful young man. Why did Randy buy two candy bars and two Pepsis? Would that have been a typical thing for him to do? He'd already dropped Steve off by the time he got to the gas station, which also had a convenience store. If we're talking about a thoughtful person, I could see him buying a candy bar and Pepsi for a companion if he was already buying those items for himself. Was Randy alone after he dropped off Steve? The mechanic, Steve, and everyone who remembered Randy from the convenience store thought that Randy's behavior was completely normal and Randy had turned down offers of beer twice over the course of a few hours. So after the gas station, Randy continued on to a pre-graduation party at the home of the Irwin family just outside of town. By this time, 15 to 30 minutes later, Randy was apparently acting strangely. What happened to Randy between the time he was seen at the convenience store totally normal, getting fuel and candy bars and talking to other people, and a short time later, Given the impression that there is something altering that normal state. Some of the things that have been said by witnesses from that night about Randy are that someone asked if there was something wrong and Randy said he didn't know it was wrong with him. Some people said Randy was drinking, some said he wasn't. Somebody else, a teen by the name of John Burns, said that he helped Randy to his car at 1.30. He said he was going to give Randy a ride home, but... Someone had taken Randy's keys, and so Burns decided to take someone else home and come back for Randy, hoping by then he would have his keys back. Then he left, and Randy lay down in the front seat of his car. John said that when he returned, Randy and the car were gone. Who had Randy's keys that night? A couple other people said they saw Randy inside the Irwin house at 2.15 a.m., apparently waiting in line to use the bathroom. In that instance, Mrs. Irwin told Randy to go outside because she thought he might fall and hurt himself, which the timing, I'm sure that can be explained. One person or another might not have totally accurate timing because it was a night of partying, but the details I think are important and should not be discounted. I could see Randy in the car. Maybe he roused himself or someone else did. He went back inside, still unsteady on his feet, and was told to go back outside and then he left either by himself or alone. Where did Randy go after the party? Also, why would Mrs. Irwin tell Randy to leave when he was clearly in no shape to drive? If she was afraid he was going to fall, why didn't she try to get him to lie down? Was she interviewed more extensively? I think it'd be nice to have more information about Mrs. Irwin's impressions of that evening and early morning. The next morning, Alberta's brother, who was a police officer, visited the Irwin farm and the party, which had actually included a large bonfire, was already cleaned up and there was no sign of a party there. Now, I don't find that to be too strange. If I had a party, I'd have it cleaned up before I went to bed. But these people reportedly selling alcohol to minors. There were students there getting ready to graduate, their classmates, their friends, their siblings, people from out of town... And there were people there of all ages and from a lot of different areas. The Irwins had made a punch spiked with 150 proof alcohol, and they were selling it for $3 a cup. There was also a rumor that someone from Kansas City had brought some pills to the party, and one might have been slipped into a drink of Randy's. Mrs. Irwin was one of the people who said that Randy didn't drink that night. I think there are some clear motives for her saying that. But this is an interesting perspective to explore. Some people have said that something happened to Randy and the people holding the party didn't want to be implicated in anything relating to that. So possibly there is an effort made to erase any trace of Randy being there. But there's no evidence to back that up. One other thing to note about the Irwin house is that a few months after Randy's disappearance, the house burned down and an accelerant was used, according to reports. So these are the last reported sightings of Randy Leach and his parents' 1985 Dodge. So there there are the rumors that someone drugged Randy, and the question will become, what would be the purpose for drugging Randy? A cruel prank, perhaps? Other reasons for drugging and effecting the disappearance of a person would be that they are privy to some type of potentially damaging information about someone else. All of the witness statements from the party are problematic, since there's no way of knowing for sure who's telling the truth. One thing is clear. If Randy was incapacitated at 2 a.m., it would take more than one person to hide him and the car. Randy was six foot two and 220 pounds. If Randy was left inside the car and the car was removed to another location by someone else, wouldn't they at least need a ride away from the disposal scene unless they already had transportation arranged? The next day, when Randy's parents realized he hadn't come home, they immediately reported it and searches were performed. Randy's dad, Harold, made a mental note that he'd seen Steve Daughtry driving past the Leach house very slowly at 6 a.m. When they say slowly, they mean 10 miles per hour on a 55 mile per hour road. So that would be strange. After driving past the house on the highway, Harold again saw Steve driving behind the house on a country lane. Now, at this point, Harold didn't know that Randy had been with Steve at all the night before. And now that Randy's disappeared, they got people out looking for him. This is when the rumors start and more bizarre things begin to come out. Remember those two candy bars and the two Pepsis? Well, there's a rumor that while Randy was alone in the convenience store after dropping off Steve, There was someone in Randy's car. That person was said to be a guy by the name of Jim Hadley, Steve's roommate. Later, the Leeches were also told that both Steve and Jim were drug users and criminals. The Leeches believed that Hadley was never interviewed by police, despite an obvious lie he told the Leeches when he said he never even met Steve. We tried to figure out where Steve and Jim's residence was in Linwood, and we couldn't find an address for them, unfortunately. But we did find a pretty good map of some of the other locations in this story, and we'll post a link on our website if you're interested in checking that out, caseacquaint.com. It was rendered by the Lawrence Journal world. Anyway, Steve was in his 30s when he was hanging out with 17-year-old Randy. Why was Randy friends with Steve? What was the connection there? In 1989, Steve told police that while he was taking a stroll along the banks of the Kansas River, he found a severed foot inside a tennis shoe. This sparked another search, but no other body parts were found, and the foot was found to not belong to Randy. We told you before that in this small town, the rumor mill ran wild. There was a story going around which began with a person who was called a witness and who claimed to be high on drugs reporting that he saw a body matching Randy's description hanging in a cave located just outside of town and everybody knew where these caves were. The body was put there by a satanic cult and the car was also hidden there. Now there was another story that Randy overdosed on some drugs at the party and several people decided to just hide his body and the car in that cave. Harold Leach said,
1: then it went on for about two years, and they had never checked the caves. And I went down and went through the caves as near as I could, back in them just a little ways, and, and I couldn't, it was too dark, you know, you, you, if you get in caves like that, it's just like taking a match and holding it in your room, you know, it was dark, you can't see very, hardly anything, and so, then later I went back down there and somebody had dozed in the entrance of the cave. Yeah. I mean, this thing's big, you could drive a semi-truck in the entrance, right. and they had got up on top and dozed all these rocks and stuff and covered up the entrance, but it had settled, you know, how dirt and ground was settle, uh-huh. and you could still climb through an opening that was maybe, oh, a foot and a half, two foot tall. Mm-hmm. So. I went back in again and come out and I couldn't find anything and uh, another guy was with me then and we, I went down to the caves and talked to the manager of the cave and uh, asked him who covered the you know the cave up because to me it that was all, like a crime scene mm-hmm. you know and that should have been taped off because there was like blood stains around and it should have been checked, but they didn't do anything. So, anyhow, uh, I, uh, he said that Leavenworth called him up, the manager of the case, said they called down and wanted them to cover it up. And he said we were more than willing to do it to stop the people from going in and out.
0: Leavenworth,
1: Leavenworth sheriff, yeah. told him to do that. Yeah. for what reason. to keep the people from going in and out of there, I guess. But it's been like that forever, you know. So then I, I questioned the detective about it. He said, well, he said, no. He said, I think they called us up.
0: Two years after Randy disappeared, the Leeches requested that the county initiate a formal inquisition. All the rumors were getting to be too much for them to understand, especially when they were getting very little information directly from investigators. Even the county attorney at the time publicly added to the confusion when he said he was sure that Randy had seen something he shouldn't have and a bad actor had taken care of him. A few months later, the same county attorney stated that there was uncertainty about whether a crime had even been committed. So the reason for requesting this inquisition was because when people make claims to authorities, it's just a report. During an inquisition, they would call these people in, and the people have to answer questions under oath. The county officials stubbornly refused this request. Harold Leach said that stories told by some people had changed with each telling, which caused him to believe they might not be telling everything they know. Wasn't this important enough to demand the truth? Even newspaper reports, in what shockingly turned out to be early days of the case, hinted at a cover-up. Even back then, one report from the Lawrence Journal World read, in part, as follows. The longer the Leavenworth County officials appear to be dodging a more thorough investigation of the case, the more reason there is for speculation, rumors, and suggestions that county officials may be involved in some kind of a cover-up, or at least not coming clean with the public. The handling of the Randy Leach case does not reflect credit on the Leavenworth County law enforcement officials, end of quote. In May of 1990, after the rejection from the county officials, the Leeches did not take that answer sitting down. They circulated a petition, got 12,000 signatures, and sent the petition to nine state and federal officials begging for that formal inquisition. It generated more support from the community and the media, but unfortunately, that also got rejected. In 1991, the governor of Kansas issued an executive order stating that the KBI, which means Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and other law enforcement agencies believed that, quote, a crime may have been perpetrated in the Leech case, unquote. The order included a $5,000 reward. At some point, documents from the case were mailed to the leeches by someone they believe was a sympathetic law enforcement officer. So Randy's parents were desperate For whatever information they could get and they're eager to publicize the case as well but the problem is some people sense desperation and they try to use it for some self-serving or even just an egotistical reason it even will bring out the brazen crazy people who regularly plague families involved in these types of cases and to us this case is a great example of that phenomenon the leeches have been approached by more psychics than they can count And I'm sure you can imagine what types of tales these so-called psychics are spinning. Another person injected himself into the case by claiming to be an investigative journalist for the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. This guy, who went by the names Terry Martin and Lee Harper, put forth some of the most far-fetched theories. If he hadn't caused so much trouble for the leeches, I don't think we would have even mentioned him in this program today. But because of the disruption he caused, we're going to address it. Martin began working with a Leavenworth County Sheriff's Office investigator named Don Weston. Between the two of them, they managed to further confuse the case. Authorities say that Weston was overzealous and made some arrests for which there was not enough evidence to prosecute, and those individuals had to be released. Those people were first, Steve Daughtry, uh, second, a neighbor and childhood friend of Randy's, and third, a guy we're going to call person C. Now, Martin called a three-hour press conference at the Leech's home. During that event, he brought forth his theories. Don't forget, he was working closely with the detective, Don Weston. Martin announced that he believed Randy was drugged and then stabbed to death as part of a satanic ritual. He said there were 50 people in attendance, and he claimed that the murders were, and I'm quoting here, Bigger than Waco, more heinous than Dahmer, you betcha. He said that two people were murdered because of their efforts to stop the murder of Randy. So, because of whatever these two found out, whomever they talked to, Weston brought the three people in and they thought they might be able to get them to admit something, which didn't happen. Martin claimed that he was going to be planted in the jail cell with the suspects to try to get some confessions, but they didn't follow through with that operation. Both Weston and Martin left Kansas fearing for their safety. Obviously, at that point in time, Martin was enjoying the confidence of the leeches. Can you see how their desperation and the lack of information shared by the authorities caused them to be open to others coming out offering help? If you can't have confidence in the motives of authorities, you might consider things like fake journalists and psychics. This type of situation might lead to something else, and that is public embarrassment for the sheriff's office. Don Weston was not the head detective. Don was only supposed to be looking at the case. Yet, Don was able to totally take over the case and make arrests. If the sheriff's office had any sense, at least, they would be embarrassed. But that's okay. We're all human. We all make mistakes because humans aren't perfect. And Weston was at least trying to close the case and was going after the people she thought were responsible, right? It might not have been the right time, might not have been the right people, but it was a mistake. So fine, admit the mistake and do better. Well, what this did was it alienated Randy's parents from the investigation even more. The shameful thing is that Harold and Alberta didn't ask for Martin to come knocking at their door, messing up the investigation, but due in part to his antics, they continue to suffer. Unsolved Mysteries, who actually had been interested in doing a segment on Randy's disappearance, decided in 1993 not to cover the story about the satanic rituals. It wasn't made up by this Martin character. There were some people who actually reported to the police that there was a satanic cult in attendance at the party that night, and they named names. They implicated three teenagers who'd been at the party and who went to school with Randy. I'm going to call them I'm going to call them person A, person B, and person C because we don't need to mention their names here. The three lived under a cloud of suspicion for years because of the report given to police by a person whose family member was a classmate of Randy's and who attended the party. The report is now accessible publicly online due to leaks from the sheriff's department. The sheriff's department interviewed the three young men and asked for permission to search the car of person A. Inside the car they found a Dungeon and Dragons book, the Satanic Bible, and two large knives. They confiscated these items and placed all three boys under surveillance and hassled them on a regular basis. Now, Person B, who had moved to Lawrence, Kansas, was startled one day in 1993 to be confronted at his home by Harold Leach and none other than Terry Martin. Martin brought up Person B being in a satanic cult and murdering Randy, and at that point, Person B asked them both to leave. Not long after that incident, a cousin of Randy's, showed up at Person B's house and pulled a gun on him. The police were called, but Person B did not pursue charges against the cousin. These three guys were impacted negatively in many ways both personally and professionally due to these problems caused by the false reports and thus by the ineffective work of the investigators of the Leavenworth County Sheriff's Department. Person A has since publicly wondered why people who originally reported the satanic panic had done so in the first place and if in fact they had something to hide. He also stated recently that he believes he's still considered a suspect. However, he met with the leeches not long ago and had a long conversation with them about the entire case, and he kindly answered all their questions. He said later that he hoped he had addressed any of their concerns with him. He was finally able to get his property back, and he found out that the two knives had tested negative for blood residue within two months of the confiscation back in 1988. Just to close the book on person A, he did not have to do any of this stuff, but he did. He showed true compassion for the couple who have been through so much and for whom no justice is in sight. Now person C was the only one of the three who was arrested and he continues to live in the Linwood area. In 2001, the Leeches had Randy declared legally dead, and Randy's case was reclassified from a missing person case to a homicide case. Over the years, there is a lot of regional interest in the case. In 2006, a KU State student wrote a play called Leaves of Words. It called attention to all of the wild theories about the case and generated more discussion. The playwright, student Tim Macy, said that although he tried to include as many scenarios as possible in the play, if he'd included all of the theories and reports, it would have been, as he characterized it, a four-hour-long play. The leeches were asked if they were planning on attending, and they said they were. Harold Leach said, I know it won't be easy, but it's kind of like you don't really have a choice as far as we're concerned. The leeches spent many years not hearing anything from police. In 2008, a reporter wanted to talk to him about the experience over the last 20 years. It's been 20 years and we've made it together through this, but you can't move on, Harold said as he looked at his wife. We just exist, she said, nodding. And then Harold spoke again. My worst nightmare is something will happen to me and Alberta will have to. She'll have to go through it on her own. That was in 2008. Finally, there's one last theory that we want to tell you about, which seems to be the most popular among law enforcement officials. So back in 1992, two career criminals by the names of Cheryl Brinkley and Eric Montgomery blamed each other for the murder of a man named Everett Skeet Bishop. Now, Bishop was a business owner who lived just a few miles from the Leeches when he met Montgomery in 1987. And that's also where he was murdered. Montgomery and Brinkley had served time together and were involved in an automobile theft operation. Brinkley was charged with the murder, and Montgomery was given prosecutorial immunity in exchange for his testimony against Brinkley. With Montgomery's credibility apparently outweighing Brinkley's, Brinkley was convicted. Brinkley appealed and in that appeal, he asked for the case files of two victims. One was that of a guy named Lloyd Folsom and the other was that of Randy Leach. The reason for this is that Montgomery admitted at a preliminary hearing that a KBI agent divulged to him that he was a suspect in both murders. Brinkley wanted to examine both cases because he felt that Montgomery and Bishop committed those murders together and removing Bishop's ability to implicate Montgomery in those murders was Montgomery's motive for killing Bishop. The Court of Appeals ruled that the files of each case would be sealed and that there was nothing in either case which would be useful or favorable to Brinkley's appeal. Everything would have been just fine, all forgotten, except for a couple details. Folsom, like Randy, was listed as a missing person, But Brinkley had claimed that they were murdered. In fact, back in 1990, the KBI were on to Montgomery from the start because they knew he had a friendship with both Bishop and Folsom. When they visited Montgomery after Bishop's disappearance, they found a stolen car on Montgomery's property. And it was then that they began to suspect Montgomery of the disappearance of Randy Leach and his mom's Dodge. The KBI offered Brinkley immunity if he would testify against Montgomery, but Brinkley refused. So then they went to Montgomery and made the same offer, which Montgomery gladly accepted because he was worried Brinkley would eventually kill him and he was given the opportunity himself to avoid jail for the time being. So Brinkley went to prison for the death of Everett Skeet Bishop. Several years later, an investigator with the Prairie Village Police Department decided to look into Folsom's case and in 2008, they paid a visit to the home of Eric Montgomery to ask about Folsom's death. Montgomery, believing that due to his immunity in the Bishop case, he couldn't be held responsible, admitted to disposing of Folsom's body in April of 1990 after Folsom was murdered, like the Bishop murder, at a Linwood house also just a few miles from the Leach home. Folsom was disposed of the same way Montgomery had disposed of Bishop's body, and Montgomery actually bragged about his chosen method of disposal, which consisted of dumping the deceased into a steel drum, welding the top on, and punching holes in the sides, then taking the drum to the river and watching it float away. For that admission, the now elderly Montgomery was sentenced to prison, and he died shortly after he began serving his 20-month sentence in 2009. I don't think anyone believes Montgomery's other claim, that Bishop, the first victim, killed Folsom, the second victim? There's still the outstanding issue of Randy Leach, too. Brinkley's appeal in 1993 claimed that Montgomery was also responsible for the death of Leach, and for that reason, Randy's file was sealed along with Folsom's. So was Montgomery asked about Randy? Was Brinkley asked about Randy? Were Montgomery and Brinkley known to have stolen cars in the Linwood area back in 1988? There's no information available about that. The leeches found out about this connection from a concerned member of the community who directed them to the newspaper articles. The authorities didn't even have the decency to let the leeches know this publicly available information or that they had suspected Montgomery as early as 1990 for the disappearance and possible murder of Randy. Cheryl Gary Brinkley was released from prison in October of 2017. To this day, the leeches continue to look for their son, follow up on tips, and accept help from those interested in chasing down leads or performing searches. Recently, private citizens have compiled some satellite images of the area and have identified specific places at which they believe the car may be located. Last year a university came to town with some ground-penetrating radar to see if they could find any signs of Randy or the car, but they didn't find anything. If the Leeches can't get any answers or proof of work on Randy's case by the KBI or the Leavenworth Sheriff's Department, they really have no choice but to keep looking for answers themselves, and they don't want to have to do that. That's why in July of 2017, the Leeches submitted a CORA application, CORA is an acronym for Kansas Open Records Act. They asked for investigative records from April of 1988 through December of 1992. The application was rejected. Then the Leeches filed a civil lawsuit seeking to compel the disclosure of those records. The trial began on November 21st, 2017. Over the last weekend of January, District Judge David King filed his decision. He ruled that there's no proof that the release of the records would be in the public interest. The leeches released a statement saying they were frustrated and devastated by this decision, and they're considering their options. They have 30 days to file an appeal. The sheriff told the press that he was pleased with the decision. April 16, 2018 will mark the 30th anniversary of the disappearance and assumed murder of their only child, Randy Wayne Leach. As usual, you can find more information on all the subjects discussed in this episode by visiting our website at caseacquaint.com. We're going to be posting links to lots of interesting information, and if you look, you'll find much more than we were able to cover today in this short episode. If you have any information about this case, head over to the In Search of Randy Leach Facebook page and send them a private message. Or you can send a letter to the P.O. box they have listed on that page. Or you can contact the Kansas Bureau of Investigation at 1-800-KS-CRIME. There are lots of ways to engage if you're interested in doing so and if you have ideas. We would love to hear them. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk again soon.